Good evening, uh, everyone. What a blessing it is to be here and a blessing to know that the Lord is guiding, directing us and taking care of us every day, day by day. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for, uh, Lord, just your sanctifying uh, work uh, using your word by your spirit to convict us and to change us and to encourage us and comfort us. Lord, we pray for all of that tonight as we study this passage together. Uh, may we uh, leave here more clearly understanding uh, the kind of people that we need to be as your followers. In Christ's name, amen. You can turn to Psalm 119. You know we're there, Psalm 119. And uh, we've arrived at the 19th stanza. It's verses 145 to 152, the 19th stanza. Just as a reminder, and we've said this many times along the way, but it always is good to kind of set the stage again. Each stanza is made up of eight verses, and so this is a stanza of eight verses as well. And as you'll remember, each stanza features a successive letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. Uh, this is not noticed in your English translations at all. But in the original Hebrew, the first word of every verse starts with the same letter, whatever letter is being featured in that particular stanza. So if you go all the way back to the first stanza, the first eight verses, they each begin with Aleph, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We are now studying the 19th stanza, so that means this stanza, each verse in it begins with the 19th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I thought we would have just a very quick lesson in Hebrew tonight, so I have a slide for you of the Hebrew alphabet. So you should memorize that, kind of take it in, memorize it. Um, we are on the 19th, uh, the letter Kof, which is right there. And um, if you add up, that doesn't come to 19 right there. And the reason is there are five of the letters that have more than one form. And so this particular chart gives you both form. Forms. You can see it right there, the letter mem uh, is the way you would write that in Hebrew, uh, except when it comes at the end of a verse. And so at the end of a verse, they change what it looks like, and so it looks like that at the end. And there are five of the Hebrew letters that have a, a final ending version of it. But uh, Hebrew reads from right to left, so that's Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and so forth. So we're all the way down here, take out all the the doubles, the final versions that are included, and we are at Kof. What's interesting about this letter, it's actually made up of two Hebrew letters. It's made up of this one, Resh, which is sort of right there, and this line right here is uh, Zion, which is up here somewhere. There it is, right here. So those two letters are put together to make this letter uh, Kof. I asked Adam if I could have this clicker thing, and that is all I needed it for right there. So, Adam, if you want, I'll throw it back to you. But uh, I don't think I need it anymore, at least. Uh, this is a majestic psalm, as you know, uh, that exalts the majesty of God's word, the glory of God's word. And we've already noted along the way that this unknown author has been facing difficulties in his life, uh, trials, and one aspect of his suffering was due to enemies, relentless enemies who were opposed to him. They were a danger to him. And that danger of the enemies that were opposed to him, the enemies that were threatening this author, that danger emerges again in this stanza that we're looking at tonight, these eight verses. Uh, yet, even though that's true, he very clearly does mention them in one of the verses, uh, refers to them at least. These verses are not ultimately about that, of course, about his enemies, as bad as they were. These verses are about how the author, the psalmist, had learned to turn to the Lord in prayer in order to uh, find his hope uh, in the Lord and in his word, in order to find strength in the Lord. He turned to the Lord as a habit in all the difficult times he was facing. So we find him in this 
stanza, raising his voice, as it were, crying out, cries of desperate appeal to God. And that means this stanza differs just a bit from the previous stanza that we studied. It's been a while since we studied that, but I'll just remind you that the tone of the previous eight verses was one of of peace and tranquility, sort of on top of the world sort of feeling. But this one is different. The the mood of this one is, is back into the turmoil, heavily so. It's characterized by lament, intense lament, even though certainly by the end of the stanza he progresses once again to adoration of the Lord. So that makes it different than the previous stanza. Also, it's different from the previous stanza in that in the previous stanza there was only one petition, and I think it's in the last verse, uh, yeah, the last verse, verse 144, right at the end of it, give me understanding that I may live. This stanza is known for its prayers. In fact, the first six verses are saturated with pleas, uh, complaints, if you will. Uh, it's only at the end where you find the praises, you know, for the presence of God and praises to God for his word. So let's walk through these verses together, 145 to 152, the Kof stanza. And as we do, we're going to divide it up into five segments. And here's the first segment, what I'm calling fervent solicitation. Solicitation, you know, is just a big fancy word for a, a request. But it's a fervent solicitation. Verse 145 begins this way. I cried with all my heart, answer me, O Lord. And the Lord is Yahweh there. This man was genuinely frightened. He was in real need, so he, he needed help. And that verb, I cried, means just that, to call upon the Lord, but, but in the sense to cry out to the Lord. And you find this word, this verb, occurring predominantly in the Psalms in the context of calling on God in some difficult situation, whether it's an individual uh, facing a difficult situation, or it's the same verb on behalf of the nation. There's a national emergency going on, and so the nation would, or the writer would cry out to God on behalf of that emergency. So there is a note of fervency in this verb, I cried. I find it very comforting that the psalmist writes like that, because it's a comfort to know that our Heavenly Father recognizes that kind of fervency. He recognizes that kind of calling out to him, that kind of crying out. And he always responds to it. Granted, he may not always respond to it in the way that we would expect or want him to at first. Maybe he doesn't respond always according to our own timetable. That's real life. But nevertheless, God never ignores this kind of cry for help. And notice that the psalmist prayed with a whole heart. He says, with all my heart. That just means he was crying out fervently with every aspect of his being. He's really sensing his trouble in this this stanza. Maybe that reminds you of the kind of praying that Elijah uh, was known for. He put great passion into his prayers. He knew how to do this. He knew how to cry out with his whole heart. So the psalmist is like that, like Elijah. He's putting his passions uh, into his prayer. He's, he's holding nothing back, nothing in reserve. This prayer was fervent. But he also prayed with a sense of intentionality. You find that in the second clause here of the verse. He says, I will observe your statutes. So you have this statement, I cried out with all my heart, answer me, O Lord. And then he goes right to mentioning God's word again, his statutes. I will observe your statutes. That really is expressing his ultimate purpose for wanting help. He was focused on more and greater obedience. He's basically saying something like this, Lord, you see my situation, and in light of this this terrible, precarious situation I'm in, I am crying out to you with all my heart. I'm crying out wholeheartedly, please answer me, Lord. And then I'll be able 
to keep on obeying you because I know that's what you desire from your followers. So you find some important ingredients here in effective praying. You see the emotional side of it and you see the volitional side of it, that there's commitment woven in. I like what the commentator Phillips said about that. He says, one side of this says, I'm desperate. And the other side of it says, I'm determined. I'm going to obey you, Lord. Phillips goes on to say, one side says, rescue me. And at the same time, his heart is saying, and rule over me. I don't want one without the other. Now, the request to God to answer me becomes now more specific in verse 146. Here it's more specific. He's fervently soliciting God for personal rescue. He says in verse 146, I cry to you, save me. So you have these two petitions, answer me, save me. They're very short and to the point, right? I mean, that's appropriate when you're in trouble and you're earnestly seeking help. In a different circumstance, you, a person might pray more eloquently or more leisurely about things, just in regular prayer time. There might even be uh, a time for thought-out petitions. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with composing prayers, writing out prayers. We have books like that, you know, the Puritan prayers and so forth. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, most of the Psalms are that. They're written out prayers, composed petitions but not when you're in a desperate situation. When you're in trouble, you pray like this. You pray earnestly. You pray seriously and to the point. Uh, you're praying desperately. You're praying fervently with this intentionality. So clearly, this author desperately needed the Lord's intervention. But again, in verse 2, we see that the pressure of his situation didn't, didn't diminish his ultimate desire to follow the Lord, it didn't diminish his ultimate purpose, obedience to the Lord in his word. He says it again in verse 2, and I shall keep your testimony. So put that together. Save me and I'll keep your testimonies. The psalmist never loses sight of that, that he desired to conform more consistently to scripture. Now just to clarify something, you, you might read that and it might sound like what some people do you know, sort of trying to deal with God, you know, make bargains with Him. This is not some sort of empty, shallow manipulation by the psalmist. He's sincere in his desire and his commitment, his promise to be obedient. And of course, that's not always the case when people make promises to God. I've seen it many times, certainly, along the way in my life. People in desperate straits, they'll promise the Lord to live better lives and they'll suddenly get very serious about reading their Bible or praying or doing whatever is necessary. They'll make those promises, if only God will act on their behalf. This psalmist is not like that. In fact, we can draw back for a moment and just think about this. The fact is, sometimes it is the very reason why God permits problems in the first place why he turns on the heat is to bring us to his purposes, which are greater obedience, greater holiness. Can you think of somebody in Scripture like that? Turned on the heat quite a bit, even though this man ran Jonah. I mean, Jonah went to the nth degree to run from God. It wasn't until Jonah found himself in the most terrible kind of situation you could imagine, you know, swallowed by a great fish. Finally, that pressure brought him to the end of himself, and he did cry out to God. You find this in Jonah 2, verse 9, in the belly of the well there, the fish. He says this in Jonah 2, 9, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, and that which I have avowed I will pay. And within moments... He was a free man. The very next verse, then the Lord, Yahweh, commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So now his promise was going to be tested, and it was, because the word of the Lord came to Jonah again a second time, telling him to go to Nineveh, 
And uh, this time, Jonah had had enough of, of seafood. Okay. He didn't want to experience that again. My point is, sadly and very frequently, people do go back on their promises to God you know, when things are going well. But by the language here, we know that our author was not like that. He was sincere. He was serious about having more opportunities to obey the Lord. And that desire influenced this fervent solicitation on his part. Now, the next pair of verses speak of something that was another important element in his prayer. So number two, segment number two, persistent meditation. Now, for the third time in three verses, the psalmist mentions his crying, verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. So again, there's no doubt in this stanza, he's thinking about the trouble. And that's why he's so persistent in his praying for help. Is It was due to the urgency of his situation. I mean, this man of God kept, kept coming at the Lord in, in a good sense, kept, kept knocking on the Lord's door, kept pestering God's throne in the best sense of that with his request. And notice when his praying started. It says it's before dawn. Literally, the Hebrew there is in the, in the morning twilight. So the idea is something like this. I mean, before sunlight, I rise. And the purpose of his rising early was to seek divine intervention. I'm sure everybody in this room has been in a place that was difficult like this. Maybe not the exact place, the kind of enemies that were after him and so forth, but a problem, a problem, a trial that's tempting us to worry, tempting us to be fearful, tempting us to feel absolutely desperate, and as a result, we can't sleep. Those times where you lie in bed and you hope morning will come, hurry up and come. Commentator Phyllis said this about those times, that at those times, quote, the bed becomes more an instrument of torture than a place to get needed rest. You ever been there like that? You look at the clock and it's, uh, it's 3.30. <laughs> I can't get up this early. But we do. Can't sleep. We get up because we just don't want to lie there tossing and turning anymore. The psalmist used any kind of time like that for prayer. And as he did, he, he maintained an attitude of hope, verse 147. I wait for your words. That word wait in Scripture means not, I'm waiting. Do what I want, Lord. No, it's waiting in, in the Scriptures in the Old Testament means to hope. I put my hope in you and your words. And we struggle with maintaining hope when we're in a situation like that and we've prayed and, and time goes by after we pray and we are watching and it just seems God is silent. There are times when he's silent. And that silence can end up feeling like the greatest trial of all. But even though it might seem like he's silent, and I stress the word seem there, he's certainly not absent. Scripture does assure us that the Lord will never abandon his people. There's a stanza in the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation, that says something like that. Listen. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not depart to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, this is what the Lord says in this song, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So even when this psalmist was praying in the dark before sunlight, he kept his hope in the Lord, and he was willing to wait for the Lord's will to be done, whatever it was. But the point of this segment is he did more than just pray, especially in those times in the middle of the night when he would wake up, and it's not time to get up. He would have trouble going back to sleep. Verse 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. So this godly man turned whatever sleepless moments he had into good use here 
He would get up before dawn. He'd rise early on purpose to pray. But even in the, the night watches, he put him to good use to meditate on truth. And he says, I anticipate them. That verb even has this element of looking forward. Looking forward to times where he would have the opportunity to meditate on God's word, God's promises. Now, to meditate means that he was contemplating biblical truth. He was turning it over in his mind. He was pondering truth. He was pondering how truth should be brought to bear on his difficult situation. He was pondering how truth should be brought to bear on the most painful kind of questions in life. To put it in a shorter way, he was pondering truth because he wanted biblical answers. So we don't have a man here who, who grew cold to Scripture because he was going through trials. We don't find a man here who came to believe that what God had previously revealed doesn't apply now. In fact, it's outdated. We don't find a man who's turning to some new psychological discovery that might give more insight now to problems. He trusted what his Bible said, and he desired to live his life in light of what that Bible said. The scriptures that he had. Now, meditating on truth like this during sleepless moments, it's a very practical way to end up doing what the Apostle Paul wrote about. Remember that phrase in Ephesians 5, 16, where Paul said, we're, we're to be making the most of our time because the days are evil. Remember the phrase from King James? Many of us grew up more on that language. Do what with the time? Redeeming the time. Remember that? I mean, this is a very practical fleshing out of that thought. God does give us a very limited amount of time. The length of our days is not expanding and shortening based upon the things that we do and stuff like that. It's, a, it's an amount of time our life from beginning to end is given to us. It's determined by the Lord. And it's a limited amount of time. It only makes sense that we should seize as much of it as possible for something related to the Lord. Something related to eternity. Doesn't mean we can never do anything else, but, but this is just sort of a lifestyle to maintain. And so this psalmist, I think, really exemplifies that, that even in the night watches, it's a time to redeem it. I'm going to once again search Scripture in my mind, and how should it be brought to bear on this situation? That's what this wise psalmist did. He made it his plan to buy up the time, to make the most of it by meditating on truth, persistent meditation. The third segment, number three, grounded expectation. Everything that he's requesting here is based upon something. And he restates his request now, verse 149, but he also now acknowledges the resources of God that he knew he needed, the resources that he was dependent upon, and he does it through two different imperatives that are addressed directly to the Lord, plus each one of these have a qualifying prepositional phrase with it. Here's the first imperative, verse 149, hear my voice. This is an important Hebrew word. This phrase, hear my voice, it's from the common Hebrew verb, shama. Shama generally means to hear. There's a very famous verse that contains this. In fact, to the Jew, this was an important verse. This is called the shama, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Very important verse. We affirm that verse. That's the shama because of that word hear. And that's what's used here. It has some extended meanings. It, it, it can mean something like listen to me or pay attention. But when it's in the context of prayer, it's more the idea of answer. So its nuance is not just hear, but, but hear me and answer me. That's the idea. And that's what our Heavenly Father does. He hears our prayers. And, and stop for a moment and think about how amazing that is. There are 8 billion people, over 8 billion people on the earth now. Okay. 
most of them drive on the 405 and the 5 and the 101 out in Los Angeles where I used to come. A large portion of them where I used to live. This is, this is amazing. You know, the Lord hears your prayer. It's amazing because I have trouble communicating and trouble hearing many times in a context like our lobby on Sunday morning or a restaurant sometimes, you know. There's noise, there's chaos, confusion of sound. I've been in many of those kind of situations, just straining to pick up a, a little portion of the conversation, trying to get every third or fourth word so I can track. I hear only some of what's said. I lose the rest. God's not like that. He has no trouble hearing each one of us, paying attention, listening to each one. No trouble hearing one voice out of all that. Even though, I'm not saying all 8 billion are praying to the Lord, they're not, but many are at the same time you are. And he hears individually each one. He can single out, and he's the only one who can do this, can single out one solitary individual voice out of all that chatter, so to speak. It's because of one of his attributes, right? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. And keep in mind that those are attributes only of deity. No other being shares those attributes. That's why it's such folly for people to pray to the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary doesn't hear any prayers. How folly it is to pray to one of the saints. The saints are hearing no prayers. This is a side point. I say this whenever I have the opportunity to say it. It's one of my beefs with the whole idea of celebrating Santa Claus. It's because this mythical figure is given divine attributes by people. Omniscience and omnipresence. Like the song says, you know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. That's actually expressing something that is a, a divine attribute. And only God has those attributes. And I believe, according to what he says, he's very jealous about his glory. And he prohibits giving any aspect of it to something or someone else. I'm just encouraging parents of young children, be careful to tell your children the truth always. Back to our text, Yahweh is omniscient. He does hear each and every prayer, and the psalmist believed that. But the significant thought now in this segment is that the psalmist is grounding his confident expectation in the Lord that God would hear and God would answer his request. He's grounding that in God's own character in other words, he's not basing this plea for divine attention on his own merit, his own worthiness. He based it on the Lord's personal and faithful love of his people, as he writes in verse 149, according to your loving kindness. It's that word that's so common in the Old Testament, faithful love, your faithful covenant love. So the psalmist is saying this, I'm, I'm asking that you hear my appeal, but not because of something about me. I, I'm asking you to do it in accord with your character, your promised faithful love to your people. I'm grounding it in that. That is the ground of my expectation, Lord, your faithful love. And based upon that faithful love, the psalmist then makes his request even more specific in verse 149, revive me, O Lord. And Lord is Yahweh here. Revive me just means energize me. Give me strength and joy in my soul. That's what I need. And again, he grounds this request in something outside of himself, something about God. This time, it's according to your ordinances. The first half, according to your hesed, according to your loving kindness, your loyal love, now it's according to, still something about God, according to your ordinances. In other words, he was expecting the Lord's help based upon the many promises contained in his word. 
So this hope that the psalmist was able to maintain, even during this difficult trial, was based upon something about God himself. Fourth segment, contrasting dedication. Verse 150, first part of it, he directly mentions his enemies now. Verse 150, those who follow after wickedness draw near. He was aware of the fact that these enemies who opposed him and were causing him so much trouble, they had wicked, evil intentions. And that just demonstrated their true character. They were completely dedicated to what is wicked, completely dedicated to what is evil, and therefore consistently pursuing that, what is wicked and evil. They follow after it. And that verbal carries a nuance of chasing or pursuing something. And, and it's chasing it with the aim of, of catching it and securing it. It's the same term that's used in the Old Testament often to convey the idea of harlotry or idolatry. Both literal harlotry and metaphorical harlotry. Literal adultery and metaphorical adultery. So it is a suitable verb here to depict the faithlessness and the lawlessness of these men who were after him. They were aggressively pursuing evil plans, dedicated to that. Just to remind you, if you go back through Psalm 119, there have been these verses along the way where he's mentioned them. Let me just remind you of them. Verse 23, this is all Psalm 119. Verse 23, princes sit and talk evil against me. Verse 61, the cords of the wicked have encircled me. 69, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. 78, the arrogant subvert me with a lie. 95, the wicked wait for me to destroy me. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare, snare for me. And coming up in the next stanza, verse 161, princes persecute me without cause. In our verse, notice what he says, he just says they were near to him. That's just another way to emphasize that they were after him. But their dedication to evil was not even the most serious thing about them. Verse 150 goes on, they're far from your law. That's the problem. They had alienated themselves from the word of God and by implication then from the author of the word of God. They were not like the psalmist at all. They were the opposite of the psalmist. I mean, this psalmist, obviously, throughout this psalm, is dedicated to the Lord and to his word. But these men had turned their backs on all the truth, completely dedicated to wicked plans. So you have a perfect summary of their state. They're near the psalmist, but look how he writes it, but they're far from God. They're near me, but they're far from you, Lord. To be far from God, that reminds you of the, what we call the parable of the prodigal son. It's really that's misstated. It's the parable of the father with two sons. The older son is just as much the star of the story. The older son was just as lost as the prodigal son was, the younger son. The older son stayed home and did everything right, very religious, but he was a hypocrite just as lost as the one out there in the world. Which is worse? They're both bad. But this one, these were like the prodigal son living in the far country. Remember, that's what it said about the prodigal. A great distance existed is the point here between these enemies and God. So this is what distressed this psalmist the most about the wicked, that they're far from God's law. So that's a good reminder of how to measure just how far somebody has departed from the Lord and are on a path of destruction, have they departed from truth, biblical truth? That's the measurement. Well, by God's grace, the dedication to evil and wickedness was not true of this author. So here you clearly see that contrast, verse 151. You are near, O Lord. So in the previous verse, the psalmist said that his enemies were near, but now he says that God is near. Both are true, but this is the only one that mattered. Because we can face any situation that's near to us if we know God is near. I like the psalmist because they're realist. 
And this psalmist is like that. He doesn't soften his dilemma. If you ask him, you know, how's it going? He's not going to say, fine. Things are looking up. He's going to say, they're near. My enemies have drawn near. And at the same time, he's going to then think about what gave him hope, and that is, but you are near, God. Commentator Derek Kidner put it this way. Listen carefully. The author is not glossing over the seriousness of his trial, is what Kidner is saying here. He doesn't gloss over the situation. He just put it in perspective by a bigger fact. The problem with his enemies was a huge problem. But it was the infinitely bigger fact of the nearness of the Lord that gave him comfort. So I couldn't help but think of other authors dedicated to the Lord like this, who had the hope of deliverance and protection because of the nearness of the Lord. Asaph in Psalm 73, verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I've made the Lord my refuge, Psalm 73, verse 28. And the prayer of Psalm 69, verse 18, oh, draw near to my soul, ransom me because of my enemies. But notice that the psalmist in our stanza keeps going back to referencing God's word. Verse 151, and all your commandments are truth. He keeps going back to that. He knew this is what grows and matures the experience of the nearness of the Lord. It's by staying near to God's word. The two go together. So that is the primary essence of the contrast here of this segment. The enemies were far from God's word, but this psalmist kept near to God's Word. He loved the Word. He knew the Word. He sought to obey the Word. And that's because of the conviction he held. What does he say about it? Your commandments are truth. The Lord's commandments were altogether self-verifying truth. Last segment, number five. It ends with a comprehensive affirmation comprehensive affirmation. Verse 152, of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Now when he says found the testimonies forever, he means that God has established them. God has firmly fixed what he has said in his word. It is established and firmly fixed. when? Well, the word forever takes us two different directions here. It takes us back, back before the creation of what we know as the universe and the planet and the galaxies and creation of man, back before that, in, in eternity past, we call it, before time existed the way we define time in our existence, before time, there was a time when there was no time, the way we define it. And we don't know how to call it anything except with a time word. So we call it eternity past. That's a time word. It's the only way we can think. That's when it was founded. Then. And the timeline keeps going. And the word forever takes us ahead as well. It takes us past our trial that we're in. It takes us past the entire length of our lives. It, it takes us past... The church age to the rapture of the church. It takes us past the tribulation period. It takes us past the millennial kingdom. It takes us on into the endless ages of the new creation on forever. So how long will God's word, how long has it existed and how long will it endure? Forever. Eternity past and eternity future. So what's he, what's he affirming about the Word of God by saying that? It's timelessness. This is something we take a big stand on today in our world of that's become so relevant and abandon, abandoning the truth. We, we say the truth still applies because it's timeless. 
And therefore, whatever's here didn't just apply. It wasn't just for him to meditate on to see how the truth he knew, what we would call the Old Testament Scriptures, whatever was completed by the time he wrote. He didn't just meditate on that because it worked back then when problems were smaller. But in our world, it's kind of outdated. And so people come up with their own truth. That's a big thing. This is my truth. I get nauseated every time I hear that. This is my truth. Truth is truth. And it's God's truth. And it's timeless. And it applies today just like it applied then. So it applies to all situations under all circumstances, including the current plight of that psalmist, including whatever trial we're facing today or tomorrow. So this stanza of Psalm 119, because it is so peppered with prayer, certainly reminds us that we need to be people of persistent and earnest prayer, just like the psalmist. This is coming up in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. We're in chapter 5 again this Sunday, 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. So verse 17 is coming. What, about a year from now maybe? Something like that. Remember what it says? Pray without ceasing. It's to be a natural, constant part of our lives to cry out to God, to seek the Lord's strength, to give Him our burdens. And we do that in specific times. Nothing wrong with that, to have organized specific time in your life. That's good. You can order your day and your thoughts by those times of prayer. But it's not to be restricted to just program times, special prayer times or prayer seasons or prayer days and so forth. We are to be people who live our lives constantly marked by this, this attitude of fervent, intentional praying. So we can definitely take that from this psalm, along with the timelessness of what he has founded forever. That's at the very heart of what we do here at our church, that belief right there. Now, with all that said, let's spend the rest of our time, let me spend the rest of my time listening to you, okay? Some discussion questions. So, you know, you try to construct questions, and there they are. Let's just answer them all at once. Um, you try to construct questions. Um, boy, I had to use a smaller font to get them all on one slide. I was, I was determined to get them on one slide and not two, so... Um, you try to construct questions that flow out of, that flow out of the psalm for some reason, you know, that are connected in some way, not just any question. You know. So, here's the first one. I believe this man was praying biblically, but what does that mean? How do we pray biblically? Good, someone else. Yes. Okay, you pray according to truth that is already revealed. So whatever it is we find out about God in Scripture, just like this psalmist, it was revealed to him God said, I'm a God of loving kindness and loyal love, and so he knew that, he believed that, and he prayed according to that. So yes, praying biblically includes that, praying in accordance with what Scripture says in some way. Anybody else? Praying according to his will, that he tells us to pray that way. Now, the only will we know of God is His revealed will, His, what we sometimes call His preceptive will, His precepts. A 
preached on this recently, I think, about finding God's will, making biblical decisions or something. And uh, we do not know his sovereign decreed will for every situation. We don't get signs about that. We don't get letters in the mail about it. We don't get fuzzy feelings about it. Um, we find out that as it unfolds, moment by moment by moment. That's how we find that out. And, um, I mean, if somebody had asked me, we, we usually don't answer questions this way, but if somebody had asked me, like, a, you know, a couple hours ago or something, are you preaching tonight? I should say, let's see. I mean, we'll see. Because I can't completely answer it until I get up here and start preaching and go, that answer is yes, by the way. Whoever asked me that, I'm, yes, I'm preaching tonight. Because here I am doing it. And usually that's the will we want to know. We want to know what's coming next and stuff like that. But we, we know his will that's revealed. So we pray according to his will. Now, the things that we don't know that are his sovereign decreed will, we can still pray according to his will by praying the way Christ did in the garden. You know, here's my request. Nevertheless, your will be done. It's biblical to pray that way. But whatever is revealed in here, we pray those things. So I, I know it's biblical. I know God desires that someone going through a difficult time bring glory to the Lord and trust in the Lord. I know that's God's will for that because it's revealed to me. And so I can pray that about that person as they're going through a trial. It doesn't mean that I can't, that you and I can't make our requests known. Philippians 4 tells us to do that, to make our petitions known. Pray something specific. I pray for this person that, that, that you, would, you would bring healing to their body. According to your will, whatever it is. But Lord, I pray that you would give this individual great comfort and that you would give them opportunity to bring glory to you, even in the eyes of the doctors and the nurses that are taking care of them, if that's possible. That's God's will. I know that. So we should pray for one another like that. So this definitely means to pray biblically, the more saturated our minds are with Scripture, the more biblically we'll pray. We'll find ourselves, in a sense, repeating God's very words. Now, some would say, you know, that you go find the prayers in Scripture that are there and you just repeat them as if they're magic potions. And that was the, the big, you know, thing about the prayer of Jabez book that came out, you know, a couple of decades ago now, I guess it was, you know, and it's an Old Testament, an obscure Old Testament prayer that a man kind of wrote a little book about and made millions, <laughs> because sold millions of copies, the prayer of Jabez, and people were buying that book up and praying that prayer, the words of Jabez, because it talks about how God expanded his properties and stuff like that, you know, and so people were praying the prayer of Jabez and claiming all that. Well, praying the prayers that are in the Scripture, are, that's okay as long as you understand the context that they're in and what the real point is. But many of Paul's prayers, there's nothing wrong with taking those and making them personal, the concepts that are there. So praying biblical concepts, praying biblical God's own words, and praying his promises back to him. Father, you say in your word that you'll use all things for my good to conform me to be more like Christ. So I pray for that in this situation. That's a biblical thing to pray, see? So yeah, that's what it means to pray biblically. And, um, you know, there are, there are devotional books and things like that that even help train us to pray biblically. We try to do that on Sunday mornings to some degree when we have the pastoral prayer, the scripture reading. The prayer is... The pastoral prayer that goes with that passage is influenced by that passage in some way, that psalm that we're reading. We don't just pray every little word of the psalm. But the things that psalm has said, we, we, there are things about that that we can pray for us and for our church today. We're to pray in faith. What does it mean to pray in faith? <clears throat> Second question. Yes, sir. Okay, trusting that God will answer our prayer in his way, in his time. Yes, that's, that's the object of our trust. We have faith 
that God will do what he says that he will do in his word, and we have faith and we trust him that he'll do whatever he does, it will always be in accordance with his character, who he is. We trust that and we believe that. So we pray in faith, knowing that he said, I'll never forsake you, you know. And so we pray in faith, believing that. This is different than how some people define it, though. So that was the right answer. One way to say it. How do some people answer that question, to pray in faith? What does it mean? To name it and claim it. Okay. Yeah. If you have enough faith, you'll generate this thing to happen. So what do we call that sometimes? Maybe you've heard that. It's faith in faith. In faith. Yeah. It's faith in your faith. I'm trusting that my faith is strong enough. I mean, I'm really feeling strong right now, you know. I'm fervent. I mean, I had some really fervent prayer, tears even. So I'm trusting more than ever that God's going to do what I ask. That's faith in faith. But biblical faith is praying, believing that he does hear. You know, we said that. You know, he said, uh, hear me. And so even though there's 8 billion people on the planet, and even though at least 20 or 30 of them are praying at the same time you are, uh, that he does hear you individually. It's believing that he does answer according to his will. It's, It's believing something else about his will, too. It's faith that his will is what? Right. Always right, always perfect. If you go back to our personal faith, it doesn't, I'm not saying that there's not some degree of personal will here in this because we are intentionally engaging our faith to believe these things that we just talked about. But what happens with our faith in moments of time? Is it always steady? Is it just ever increasing up? It ebbs and flows, does it not? your faith always strong? What does our faith get mixed with then sometimes? Doubt, fear, what else? Worry, unbelief, however you want to say it. And so we need faith. And it's not that we need a certain amount of faith to be on a meter that finally rings the bell, you know, like the old thing at the fair that you hit with the big hammer and it makes it go up and ring the bell. It's not that our faith needs to reach some threshold. Amazingly, it's not an overwhelming amount of faith that we need for God to hear us because our strength is not in our faith. It's in God who is the object of our faith. So even a little faith is good, but there is nothing wrong with then asking God even for the faith that we need to pray in faith, okay? That's Mark 9, verse 24. It says, immediately the boy's father cried out, you know, because he was told you need to believe. The boy's father cried out and said, what? You remember what he said? I do believe, but help my unbelief. I've prayed that many times. I believe. Help help now my unbelief. Help me to trust you more. Help me to trust that your will is perfect. Help me to desire what your will is, Lord. So how is faith cultivated? That's one way you can pray it, but how is faith cultivated in our lives? It's not a trick answer. God's word goes back to that, which is the theme of this psalm. It's cultivated by hearing God's word, studying God's word, because that's where we learn what God is like. If I'm going to have trust in someone, you know, if I'm going to trust you, it's because I've gotten to know you at some level, you know. We need to know God. And the more we get to know Him, the more strong our faith is made because it's faith in Him. 
So yeah, we, we learn what is right, we learn what is holy in his word, and that grows and matures our faith. Yeah. Yes, God also cultivates our faith by bringing us through trials. Yeah. He, he enrolls us all the time, over and over and over, in what I call, use college lingo, trials 101. We constantly find that we've been re-enrolled in that class again. It's like, but I've already gone through it, and I passed it. Yeah, I want you to take it again. So unlike whatever degree that you, you may have gotten, in, in the college of God's training and teaching, he just keeps enrolling you in that course over and over and over and over again the rest of your life. Trials 101. But it's for a purpose. Uh, if you look at First Peter real quick. If you have trouble finding it, it's right before Second Peter. First Peter chapter 1. I, I mention this verse from time to time, especially in meeting with people. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Or to use my language, if necessary, you have been re-enrolled in trials 101 again. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, so that your faith, so pick back up with the, the sentence again, so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that your faith will actually be made strong and grow, that it'll persevere. So there's a connection between our faith, growing in our faith and persevering, learning how to persevere in faith. There's a connection with that, with the various trials that he brings us through. So that's how he cultivates our faith, by taking us through difficult circumstances, testing us, never tempting us, but testing us so that we can put into practice the things we have learned in the Word. Number four, we want to meditate so that we can learn the Word, but what is biblical meditation? What is it not? I sort of answered it in the sermon, but let's talk about that. What is biblical meditation and what is it not? You can take either half of that. Yeah, Tiffany. Comprehending Scripture in its context, whether it's a verse or passage, it con comprehending truth in its context where we find it. Comprehending it. So that means meditation depends on some understanding. What else did I say the psalmist did in the wee hours of the, of the night when you're meditating on something. What? Praying it. Whatever it is you're meditating on, praying that truth. What else do you do with that truth? Think of a cow. Yeah, you chew the cud. You know, I know nothing about cows, but I know that little expression. You chew on it. I mean, meditation uh, is that. And so it's, it's more than just reading it. So, I mean, you don't have to be in the wee hours of the night to meditate. Okay, we, we meditate during the day as well. You meditate while you're driving. Meditate while you're mowing the yard, you know. You meditate on truth. You, you chew on it. You, you turn it around and around. It could be one verse, something from a sermon on Sunday, something from what you read that morning, something you heard on a, on a, by a preacher on the radio, and you're just you're turning it over and over, and you're, you're meditating. You're looking at it from every angle, pondering it, I think is what I said about the psalmist, pondering it. We should do that all the time so that we can pray it, so it enters into our prayers, enters into our answers, by the way, to other people, and enters into the answers we're looking for in our own trial. 
So what is it not? It's not some new age thing. Okay, what, what is that? You know, hum. You know, sit cross-legged and folding your arms out and humming, and making sure your crystals are all lined up or something. It's not that. It's not a. It's not a fuzzy feeling again that we're trying to get. Although there can be moments of enlightenment that are exciting, like, man, that's profound. Oh, that's good stuff. You ever said that to yourself? Man, that's, that's something. You know. So this is more than just even memorizing it. People, people can memorize Scripture. I'm not against memorizing Scripture, and, and I think it's a great idea. <laughs> uh, and memorizing large portions of it is a great idea. You know. We haven't done this in years, but uh, if I called her up here, she probably could recite to you, my wife could, but I would never do that on her birthday. Uh, I would have her come up and recite Romans 8. She has Romans chapter 8 memorized, has for years. But, um, and that's a good thing. So I have friends that have memorized books of scripture. Uh, some common friends that Scott and I have out in California memorized chapters and chapters. That's all wonderful, but what's even more important? But I mean, it's all you, if all you do is just memorize it, I mean, you can do that with a Reader's Digest or anything, you know. But it's the meditating on it. It's letting it come back into your heart and your mind again and again and again. That's what is rich. Because that's helping you internalize it to the extent that the truths that you've discovered in the Bible become then how we are thinking. So we're like, you remember the famous statement that Spurgeon made about Bunyan? That if you cut him, what? His blood was bibbling. That the essence of the Bible just flowed out of him. I mean, that's a great thing to have on your tombstone for people to think of you. Yeah. So that we're thinking differently. And when we're thinking differently, then we can function differently. You ought to make this a, a life verse, one of your many. Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8, somewhere right in there. Joshua 1, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. And remember what Psalm 1 says about the blessed man? He rejects the counsel of the world, but he... The law of the Lord is his delight, and he meditates on it day and night. So whatever you're reading in the mornings or studying or anything like that, intentionally find times during the day when you're driving or whatever, regurgitate it, back up, <laughs> chew on it. It's hard work, actually, meditation, but the reward is great. Number five, he said my enemies are near, but what really matters is God is near. How do we increase the awareness of God's nearness in our life? I mean, we can feel like he's silent. We can feel like he's far away. Again, not a trick answer, trick question or anything. Say it again. We draw near to him, which James tells us to do, by, you know, saying no to the, to the world and the devil and submitting to God. We draw near to him. I mean, God doesn't move. We, we move. But it goes back to the word, right? In some way or other. Colossians 3, keeping our mind on things above. You know, if I'm intentionally setting my affection in my mind, it says both of those in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. If that's where my mind and my affections are, then I'm thinking about the things where he is, so to speak. I know he's omnipresent, but... It's the things of heaven, the things of eternity. Yeah, he, I love that verse in Psalm. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. He's ever-present, omnipresent, ever-present. And I think we have to remind ourselves of that. We have, a, we have a responsibility in this, you know, to increase the awareness of God's nearness because he is near. But... It's possible to have a, a theological education. It's possible 
to know a lot of biblical facts and, and know very little about God himself. You know, that's sad, but it's possible. Because learning can end up being just academic and intellectual. So we're talking about prayerfully studying the Word of God and meditating on it. And he and his Word are connected. We're going to see that this coming Sunday, I think it is. Number six, explain this quote. Explain this quote. I gave it to you from Derek Kidner. The threat is not glossed over. He's talking about the threat that the psalmist was in. He's not glossing over it. It's just put in perspective by a bigger fact. What did that mean? Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, with David and Goliath. Uh, that was a big threat, you know, nine feet tall threat. David couldn't wear the armor. All he had was the slingshot thing. And, but he had a bigger fact, and that is the God of Israel. And that's what he rebuked his brothers with, you know. Do you, do you not know the God of Israel? I mean, he's on our side. I've mentioned this before. There's a book I love. It's uh, by um, Morris Roberts called um, The Thought of God. We sell it from time to time, The Thought of God. And he says in the first couple of chapters that our anxiety is due mainly to the fact that we, we and I'm just paraphrasing it, we make our problem, we have a big view of our problem and a small view of God. And what we need is a big view of God our problem doesn't change necessarily, but it's now shrunk in comparison to our view of God. Number seven, what's the significance of the timelessness of God's word for our times of suffering today? We believe that the word of God is timeless. Why is that important for us? It doesn't change. It's the same truth now as it was then, which means it's still what? It's still relevant. If you've heard this before, my job is not, the pastors, the elders, our jobs are not to make the Bible relevant somehow. There's churches all over our nation driven by relevancy there, trying to keep things relevant to the culture. No. Our job, all of us individually, is to become relevant, conform our lives to the Word of God. So it's not make the Bible relevant to us, it's make us relevant to the Bible because it does not change. It's timeless. Well, I did read a, uh, a stanza from that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, so we're going to close by singing that. Invite the orchestra to come on up, take their places. And I'm trusting we have some slides for this. Okay, thank you, Adam. How firm a foundation. Let's stand together and close with this great song. <clears throat> I don't know how many verses are up there. We'll just keep singing till there's no more verses.